There's a Canadian missionary called Don Richardson, and he sat with a 25-year-old member of the Yali tribe. This young man's name is Arariak, and Richardson, this Canadian missionary, asks him to tell him a story, and the following is Don Richardson's account of their conversation. He writes, Arariak grinned. He was obviously pleased by my interest in his people. Then his eyes lit up as an old memory returned. An adventure involving his own brother, Sunahan, and a friend named Kahalek. Erariak cleared his throat and he described how the two men went to gather food early one morning. Now, just as, uh, as they began to find sweet potatoes in their garden, Sunahan and Kahalek heard an arrow zing past them. In the next instant, instant an arrow struck uh, his friend Kahalek. Glancing over their shoulders, these two food gatherers saw a large group of raiders emerge from, from ambush, and the gleam in each raider's eyes told Sunahan and Kahalek that these enemies from across the Haluk River fully expected to feast on human flesh that very day. Sunahan and Kalahalek's flesh. And so they dropped their sticks, and Sunahan and Kahalek grabbed their bows and arrows, and, and they bolted for their lives. And at this point, wrote Richardson, um, I expected Arariak uh, that he would tell me that Sunahan and Kahalek fled up a steep trail toward the safety of their village on a ridge high above the garden area. Instead, he said that they turned from the trail and they fled across their gardens to a low stone wall. Right before they reached this wall, more arrows struck already wounded Kalek. He fell just outside the wall and he lay there dying. Sunahan, however, leaped over this wall. He whirled around, he bared his chest at his enemies and he laughed at them. The, the, the raiders fled leaving Sunahan without a scratch. But why didn't they, they shoot him? Why didn't they kill him? I asked. He was standing right there. Arariak smiled rather condescendingly. Don, you don't understand. Sunahan was standing inside the stone wall. Well, what difference would that make? I queried. Well, the ground inside the stone wall, Arariak explained, is what we Yali call an osua a place of refuge. And if the raiders had shed one drop of Sunahan's blood while he stood within that wall, his own people, his, their, their own people, would have punished them with death when they returned home. Likewise, although Sunahan held weapons in his hand, he dared not release an arrow at the enemy while standing within that wall. For whoever stands within that wall is bound to work violence against no man. And then Richardson writes this, you could have knocked me over with a feather. Let's turn to Joshua chapter 20, verse 1. Joshua chapter 20, verse 1. Then the Lord said to Joshua, tell the Israelites, to designate 
the cities of refuge as I instructed you through Moses, so that anyone who kills a person accidentally and unintentionally may flee there and find protection from the avenger of blood. When they flee to one of these cities, they are to stand at the entrance of the city gate and state their case before the elders of the city. And as I'm reading this, as I sometimes ask you to do, try to imagine what, just, what this looks like in your head. When they flee to one of these cities, verse 2, they are to stand in the entrance of the city gate and state their case before the elders of that city. Then the elders are to admit the fugitive into their city and provide a place to live among them. If the avenger of blood comes in pursuit then the elders must not surrender the fugitive because the fugitive killed their neighbor unintentionally and without malice or uh, without malice or forethought. They are to stay in that city until they have stood trial before the assembly and until the death of the high priest who was serving at that time. Then they may, may go back to their own home in the town from which they fled. I was hiding behind a tree And I was trying not to breathe too loudly. All that you could hear was my heart beating like a drum. And I hope that whoever was looking for me couldn't hear it, but I was sure that they were able to. And so I looked out from that tree, and I saw the person who was... who was after me. They hadn't seen me yet. They were walking around warily, scanning from side to side, occasionally spinning around to see if anyone was hiding there. And I looked to where I had to reach an oversized rock in the middle of the clearing. Now, I wasn't in danger for my life. I wasn't on, run, on the run from the police or the mob. I was actually playing a game called Mob. And uh, so I wasn't on the run from the mob, but I was playing a game called Mob. And the whole idea of Mob is that there's a central location called the Mobbing Post, and it's usually a tree or a rock or a bench, um, and whoever is it stands at, at that mobbing post, and they count up to 30 or, or, or up to 60, and then everyone else hides, and then the counting is over, the seeker says, ready or not, here I come, and the fun starts. And the goal for every person who's not it is to reach back, is, is to arrive back at the mobbing post, and to shout mob mob, and then to shout their own name. While the person who is it, their goal is to get back to the mobbing post uh, first and then to shout mob, mob, one, two, three. And if they shout mob, mob, one, two, three, if they shout mob, mob, one, two, three, then you're it. If you arrive back first and say mob, mob, your name, then you're safe until the end of that round, at which point it all starts again. And I remember one time, uh, it's a bit of a shameful memory, but my brother and I made my sister cry during mob. Because what happened is that, is that at that age, we were a similar height, and our build was similar, and we both had blonde hair. And so we decided that we would swap shirts. And so my sister, who's younger than both me and my older brother, sees Chris in that tree, or at least she thinks it's Chris, and so she runs back to the mobbing post, and she shouts, mob, mob, Chris. And of course, I shout out with glee, ha, it's not Chris, it's me, by which time Chris has arrived back at the mobbing post, and he's saved himself and me. Like I said, it wasn't one of the prouder moments of my life. But this concept of running to safety, of seeking refuge, is a key theme in life. We see it everywhere. We see it in the board game called Sorry. I don't know if you've ever played Sorry, but the whole point of Sorry is that you try to get back to the safe zone 
um, and you try not to let your, the people who are against you catch you before you reach the, the safe zone. We also see it in games like hide and seek or mob. We see it in, 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 in capture the flag. We also see it in the picture of the spy who's in the former USSR running towards the safety of the embassy of their country with the guards holding open the gates with their, with their, with, with, uh, with, with their rifles ready, willing that their countrymen makes it back to safety. And it shows up as well in the idea of sanctuary in a church building in the Middle Ages, I assume that's why we call this place the sanctuary, because you used to be able to claim sanctuary. And it shows up as well in, these idea, in this idea of the refuge cities in the promised land. It's almost as if God has hardwired it into our nature that we want to seek refuge, that we want to seek safety. And so I love that, that, that God makes it his first point of order after parceling out out the land to establish these places of refuge. Now, now today, we're ostensibly looking at Joshua chapter 20 and verse 21, but I want us to really focus on chapter 20. But I do have to mention that in the next chapter, we read about these towns which are set aside for the Levites, and, uh, and, and so we, we call them cities of worship. You see, last week we heard that the Levites weren't going to receive any portion of the land as an inheritance because God himself was their inheritance, because God wanted them scattered throughout the, the nation and the lands to make sure that worship took place as it had, and also to, uh, to make sure that worship took place as it should, and also to help people understand what the law meant. And so he wanted his representatives all through the land. Now, in Numbers chapter 26, verse 62, we read that there were 23,000 Levites, which is a, a, it's, it's a large number, it's a sizable number. Um, and so that's a large number of people that had no land set aside for them. Um, and so what happened is, uh, is um, and what we read in uh, chapter 21 is that they set aside 48 maybe cities or maybe towns throughout the land, um, and these were known as Levitical towns, Levitical cities. And what this means is that everyone in the nation had access to someone who could explain God's law to them. Now, out of these 48 Levitical cities, six of them were then set aside as refuge of cities of refuge. There were three on the east of the Jordan and there were three on the west of the Jordan. And the size of the promised land was about the size of Maryland, if you've ever been there, which means that there would have been a refuge city within relatively close proximity to wherever you were. There was always a, a, a refuge city close. And the purpose of these cities of refuge was to look after um, those who had killed someone without meaning to. We might call it manslaughter. So here's how it might have worked. Say you accidentally killed someone on the work site by dropping a spanner on their head. Well, if that happened, you would immediately leave the work site and you would start running as fast as you could to one of these cities of refuge. Let me read you an example in, in Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 5, and, and feel free to also turn there if you wish. Deuteronomy 19, verse 5. This is a really good example of why these cities of refuge exist, um, existed. So it says here, uh, verse 5 of Deuteronomy 19. For instance, a man may go into the forest with his neighbor 
to cut wood, and as he swings his axe to fell a tree, the head may fly off and hit his neighbor and kill him. That man may flee to one of these cities and save his life. Otherwise, the avenger of blood might pursue him in a rage, overtake him if the, t- if the distance is too great, and kill him even though he is not deserving of, uh, of death, since he did it to his neighbor with malice. A forethought. This is why I command you to set aside for yourself three cities. Yeah, there's three on the east, three on the west of the Jordan. So if you didn't flee, then, then the family of your dead worker, you know, your dead workmate, would immediately start seeking you out in order to murder you or to kill you. And in fact, this was the responsibility of the, uh, of the dead person's closest relative. Because this is how things worked back then. In fact, we can read this in Exodus chapter 21, where it says this. Exodus 21 verse 23 says this. Um, But if there is serious injury, you are to take life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, and bruise for bruise. So that's how things were laid out then. But the thing is, is that, is that the family of the dead person were not necessarily interested in finding out if you meant to kill them or not. Was it an accident? Was it intentional? Was it simply being in the wrong place at the wrong time, flinging your axe and the head falls off? off or was it actually premeditated? Was it murder? Was it manslaughter? And so family members would take it into their own hands. They would feel really justified by the law, that, uh, by law of God himself, and they would seek the, seek the blood of the accused. These were like lynch mobs. This was not rule of law. And so so. For this reason, as they settled into the promised land, God wrote it into the DNA of this society, this loophole, this, 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 this safety net, this, this way that would hold back this new nation of becoming a nation of revenge killers. He created cities of refuge. You see, if these cities of refuge did not exist, then what was to stop entire clans wiping themselves out with murder after murder after murder after murder after murder after generation after generation. It would just go on and on and on. So um, if we look at verse 4 of chapter 20, we find out the process of how these cities of refuge work. First, uh, the fugitive flees. So he flees or she flees. Secondly, they, they stand at the gates and they state the their case. Thirdly, the fugitive is admitted into the city of refuge. Fourthly, they, uh, they, they, are, um, you know, they have a house or a home uh, there so they can stay and then they are tried. And what happens if they're, if they're innocent of intentional murder, they can stay and then when the current high priest, when he dies, then, then the fugitive can return home to safety. Now, it's also worth noting that these cities of refuge were easy to spot, easy to hide, uh, to find. They were way up on the hill, and the roads that led there were all straight and were well maintained because God wanted uh, to make it as 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 easy as He could for someone who was innocent to escape reprisals. Now, um, now God shed some 
uh, light on the judicial system in Numbers chapter 35, verse 22, where he says this. Numbers 35, 22, um, where he says this. But without... But if without enmity someone suddenly pushes another or throws something at them unintentionally or without seeing them drops on them a stone heavy enough to kill them and they die, then since that other person was not an enemy and no harm was intended, the assembly must judge between the accused and the avenger of blood according to these regulations. The assembly must protect the the one accused of murder from the avenger of blood and send the accused back to the city of refuge um, to which they, they fled. The accused must stay there until the death of the high priest who was anointed with the holy oil. So when the person on the run makes it to the city of refuge, they are looked after until they can stand trial. Um, Now, what I want you to do now is to use your imagination. Okay, we're in North Gore, but let's pretend North Gore is in the promised land. And uh, you've accidentally... maybe dropped a rock on someone's head, and they die, okay? And, uh, but, but, but there was no malice, there was no ill intent. And you know that their family is going throughout the streets of the gore, looking for you, trying to seek you. Now, what would happen if suddenly you were on the run and you had only the clothes on your back, you had... N- no chance, you know, to head over to the Royal Bank and to get money out. Uh, you know, you had nothing, not, not even a bag. And so you resorted to sleeping in the day and moving in the night so that you could keep yourself safe. Um, so you went from here, you know, up to Manatic and you keep, you know, and you kept on heading north. So what would it look like if there was no police, there was no law of the land and all you had was, was, was your legs? And, uh, and the option of escaping. Um, but you could never relax. You could never rest. Because these folks who were after your blood might be there right around the corner. And you would never know. Now imagine the same, same case. But now you have a place to run to. You have a place to retreat to. You have a place of safety where justice will be served. And you are free from the fear of being picked off by a hitman. That's what the cities of refuge meant. Let me um, share another story with you from that missionary, Mr. Don Richardson. And this time he's talking about Hawaii, not New Guinea. And in this count, he, he uses some Hawaiian words that are super long and I don't know how to pronounce them, so I've shortened them and made them readable for me. And this is what he writes. No one knows when the Hawaiians first dedicated the sacred precinct called uh, Honaunau for its special purpose. Uh, there are archaeologists who believe that King Kiawe, around AD 1500, built a temple on the site and he surrounded it with a 10-foot-high ten f- ten wall, much of, which st- much of which still stands. Honaunau still stands on the western shore of Hawaii, about six miles south of, of the monument commemorating the death of English explorer Captain James Cook. Um, 
Now, if you were able to get inside King Kiawe's ancient wall, that 10-foot-high wall, this meant life itself because any fugitive who entered found a shelter already made for him. He found a garden and a grove of coconut palms ready for sustenance. He found a spring which bubbled with fresh water. Uh, He found a stretch of, of ocean beach which invited him to swim and fish, and then, and then Richardson writes, and, and Hanauna was only one of a network of, of maybe 20 such cities of refuge scattered through the Hawaiian island chain, end quote. Here's a glimpse into some of the grow group questions that we will be looking at this week. One of the questions will be this. What was the purpose of the cities of refuge? What do we learn about God as, uh, as, as the one who made these, these cities of refuge happen? Why is it important that the cities of refuge were on high ground and evenly spread throughout the land? What do you make of hearing about other places of refuge in such far-flung places like like, like New Guinea and Hawaii that served the same purpose as the cities of refuge in in the book of Joshua. Um, What would you say to someone who says it's just just maybe a coincidence? Um, And what are some comparisons and contrasts between cities of refuge and our salvation in Jesus Christ? Those are some of the questions that we'll be looking at in our grow groups this week. Now we've heard about the Yali tribe of New Guinea. We you know, we've also heard about the residents who live 5,000 miles away in Hawaii. And now we've just learned about the Israelites moving, moving into the promised land. What is it that links these cult, three cultures that are literally continents apart, separate, separated by both history and also geography? It's this. It's that they've all created this idea of cities of refuge, a, a, a location that if you can reach, then you're literally saved from those who want you to die. Somehow, in these three locations all around the world, this, this concept of places of refuge took root really deep in the, cult, uh, in the collective cultural mind. It's absolutely... Mind-boggling when you think about it. In these three locations, it's the same concept. And what we read in the Bible, though, is that it's no mystery how the practice took root in the Israelites. It was God. It was God himself who made it happen. And what excites me and what really gets my heart pumping is that I believe that God also established this practice in Hawaii and, and also with with the Yali. And why it excites me is that what this means is that God is sending out a unified message throughout the world that, that, that there's a secret code in these cultures that we're all refugees in need of a refuge, that we're all people on the run in need of a place that we, that we can be safe from the claims of the law. Now, what would it look like if you were a missionary to maybe Hawaii or the Yali and you're you're trying to work out how do I link the message of the gospel with this tribe who has had very little link with with folks who live outside of the culture that they would not understand the concept of a God who would sacrifice his own son because because for them a God who sacrifices his own son sounds like weakness but then you hear about these locations for uh, of refuge for those who were guilty, and a light bulb shines in your mind. I mean, how easy is it to um, link 
link the dots between the concept of, of these cities of refuge that this culture already understands, you know, and the message of the gospel. It's absolutely incredible. It's a gift, and I don't believe it's an accident. I believe that it was very intentional on God's part, and, what, and why I think it's very intentional is that in Romans chapter 1, verse 18, it says this. Romans chapter 1, verse 18 says this. What may be known, what may be known about God uh, verse 19, what, what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. What may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. And what Paul's talking about here is that he's saying that in all of the, in, in people groups around the world, is that God has made plain the message. Maybe they don't have, maybe they've never read the Bible. Maybe they've never heard the name of Jesus, and yet, with, and yet there, within their cultures, they, they have these signposts that point to the message of the cross there, ready for them, which means that, that when the gospel is, is shared with them, they already have these bridges of understanding that link them with this great news that Jesus, he died for them, in, so that he could, he could deal with their sin problem. And the, and the city of refuge, as, as we've just read, with the Yali, with the Hawaiians, is an, is an incredible, powerful sign that leads us right to Christ. But like anything, these, these, these things are signs, uh, signs, what we've just read in Hawaii and, 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 and what we've just read with the Yali. These are signs, but like anything, the actual thing is more amazing than the sign itself. Just like, you know, you'd rather have a brand new car than an advert about a car. So, so, so if we take this Israelite city of refuge as the sign that points us towards the reality of Christ... Um, why is the reality much greater than the sign? Here's why. Because in, in, in the sign, in the city of refuge, that, that these cities of refuge exist for those who have done no wrong. But Christ, as the actual thing towards which the sign points, is a city of refuge for those who are guilty. That he came to, to make a, a refuge, a sanctuary for those who are guilty. For those who have blood on his or her hands. Because Christ came to make a safe place for the one who sinned. He is is the ultimate city of refuge. He came to open the embassy gates, not only to his own people, but to those who aren't part of his own nation yet. You know, those, those who aren't, aren't, aren't yet citizens, those who aren't yet his, he opens up those embassy gates to everyone. You see, what, what's, what Christ says in John chapter 6, verse 37, he says this, um, All those the Father gives me will come to me, and who, whoever comes to me I will never drive away. All those the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never drive away. So what this means is that anyone who comes to Jesus for sanctuary he will never drive away. So what about you? Have you ever come to Jesus for refuge? Have you fled to him or are you still on the run? Have you knocked on the door? Have you said, let me in with, your, you know, with the weight of your guilt and your sin? You know, what's, what's, 
wonderful about Christ is that unlike the cities of refuge, which we read about, you do not have to state your case. In fact, you aren't able to state your case because you, you don't have a case. You do not have a leg with which you can stand. Your, your hands are blood-stained. Your heart is lust-stained. Lust your eyes are full of envy. Your, your fists are clenched tight with anger and with aggression. And your soul is full of pride. You don't have a leg. And so you stand in front of the gates of this city of refuge, which is Christ. And Christ is standing in front of you. And, and there in the mob behind you are those, are those people who are after your blood. You can hear them as they shout out this litany of things that you have done wrong. They know what you have done. Every last one. And as you stand there seeking refuge from Christ... Your shoulders sag with this knowledge of this case which is being brought against you. You know that it's all true. And so you turn and you look at your accusers. You know that you broke the law. But it's more than just law breaking. You've also hurt others. And you've also broken God's heart. You've also hurt him. And as this realization crashes over you, you start to walk away from Jesus And you walk towards your accusers. After all, you were guilty. And you realize that that you deserve everything that is heading your way. You, You realize that you can never, ever be right in the eyes of a holy God. That you can never claim sanctuary in the city of God. And as you turn, and as your accusers start to maybe tense in, in, in anticipation of this bloodbath that will happen, you hear five simple words. What is it you want? And those words make you stop in your tracks. And then you turn around again, and you look at Christ, and you say, I really want to come in. I want refuge. I want a fresh start. And then there's this maybe awkward pause that seems to stretch on and on and on. And you look down in shame. And as you start again to turn and walk away, something catches your eye and you look up. And what you see is a hand stretching towards you. And, And you see this hole in that hand. And you know that that is the hole where the nail went through. And, and, and you know that that nail hole is there because of you, because of your sin. That it was your sin that caused Jesus pain. And then you look at that hand and you move up the, the hand, up the arm, the shoulder, the neck, and you look at his face. You look in his eye. And as you look him in the eye, Jesus asks you, asks you this. He says this, simply this. Will you turn from your sin? Are you willing to leave your old life here at the gates? And you, you nod, not really trusting yourself to, to say anything. And then he says this, would you like a fresh start? Would you like a place of refuge? And again, you nod. And then he asks you this, so um, you believe that I took your place on the cross, and that your entire, that, that everything that you owned was, owed was paid in full, that there's nothing more that you have to pay, and you manage to get one word out this time. You say, yes. And those eyes, which are clear, which are looking right at you, which are full of compassion, 
They fix yours with an unswerving gaze. And they say then, and he says then, you may enter. And so you take Jesus' hand and you walk with him into the city of refuge. Psalm, Psalm 17 verse 1 says this. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? What these cities of refuge show us is they show us the heart of God himself. They, they show us that it was a safe place to run. It was accessible to all. Uh, no one was to be excluded from it. And these cities of refuge point towards Jesus Christ. And, and, and this word here, this Bible, says that anyone who calls on the name of the Lord, whether, whether from Hawaii or whether part of the Yali tribe, whether from North, North Gore or Manatic or Kars or Richmond, wherever, anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. No one is excluded. Anyone. But sadly... There are many people who are on the run from, from their accusers. There are many people who are on the run from their past. There are on the, they are on the run from their sin. They're, they're on, the, on the run from them, from them very selves. And there are many people who are actually on the run from God himself, hoping that he never catches up with them. But here is the truth. If God is chasing you, it's because he's trying to chase you towards refuge. He's trying to chase you towards uh, towards his son he's trying to herd you like a like a sheepdog chasing sheep herding sheep he's he's incessant he's always on you and that gate is open and you can walk across its threshold into a new life just like those in in Hawaii who entered the compound they would find shelter that they would find a garden of coconut palms they would find a fresh spring and a stretch of ocean beach. You see, Jesus, he, he, it's not just about the, the bare bones of life, but Jesus offers us a hugely abundant life. But, but, but what has to happen for you to access that new life, that fresh new life, is that you have to leave your old life at the gate. That's the only way that you can walk into refuge. You have to trust that Jesus is going to take care of your past, of your sin, and of your shame. Because walking through that gate is like being born for a second time. That this gate is a birth canal towards a new life. It's a clean slate. It's a fresh start. It's a whole new life. But as you walk across that threshold, what you realize is that, that, is that what you always wanted is there. All you want is Jesus. Only he can truly satisfy you. And you know this deep in the fiber of, of, of every cell of you. And as you walk into this new life, you hear these words. One thing I ask from the Lord, this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, so that I may gaze on the beauty of the Lord. Because that's what security looks like. That's what freedom looks like. That's what a fresh start looks like. That's what home looks like. That's what refuge looks like.